This morning I want to encourage you to open up to page 401 or to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And this morning, um, we, we are going to be dealing with... Um, last week we talked about how do we respond to opposition. This week we are going to be talking about uh, resolving conflicts within. Here's the reality, is that uh, if you have been around church long enough, a church family, been involved in the ministry of a church, uh, you have probably seen, more than likely, you have seen um, conflict, internal conflict. Raise your hand if you have seen any kind of church conflict, and be honest, any kind of level of church conflict. Okay. There is a guy named J. Vernon McGee, and uh, when I was a kid growing up, J. Vernon McGee was known as one of the uh, leading Bible teachers of his day. J. Vernon McGee wrote a book called, and I love this, Great Church Fights. Great Church Fights. Uh, I don't know if that should be a name, if if that's kind of an oxymoron, but uh, he wrote a book called Great Church Fights, which I, I have not read, but in my research, he... He wrote about, he observed that in the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was he joined it. If he could not slow down the church by persecuting the church, in fact, what happens when the church is persecuted? Generally, the rule of thumb is when the church is persecuted and forced down under, the church explodes. Because people very quickly rely on the power of the gospel. They rely on God for everything. So when that doesn't seem to work, what does Satan do? He joins the church. He gets involved in the lives of the church. He creates havoc. And so this morning, we're we're going to see what happens. Satan's next approach, there was opposition, external opposition. And this morning, we're going to see that there is an internal conflict Satan is using an internal conflict to stop the building of the wall. So join along with me at chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get, get grain so that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, we have borrowed money from the, for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, 
the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. And so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O God, all I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. So if we live in a fallen world, honestly, splits are inevitable. Splits are inevitable if we are committed to sound doctrine and godly standards. People are going to come and go into the church if we say, you know what, these are God's standards. These are godly standards doctrines these this is what scripture says about our life and life as a christian as a follower of jesus christ it's inevitable there are going to be splits people are going to be coming and going there have always been and always will be those people who will bring into the church destructive heresies and or evil behavior and if church leaders if church leaders are obedient to God, they must, we must confront serious error and sinful behavior. That, that, that's the call of a leader, is to be, to be a shepherd, is to be one who takes the rod and the staff. You know, there's this, Psalm 23 talks about, thy rod and thy staff, they, they comfort me. 
So even the sheep recognize that the the rod and the staff, the, the guiding forces, the disciplinary objects are used for their comfort, for their safety and their security. And a leader must be willing to confront, to lead, to guide, to discipline the flock for their sake and for the glory of God. The church is known as the bride. The bride of Christ and the elders of the church have a heavy responsibility to do what? To feed, to protect, to guide, so that the bride of Christ is presented on that last day as a pure and spotless, what? Bride. And so it is our responsibility that we must, using Scripture as our guide, we must always lead and guide in a way that presents his bride, his flock, as pure and spotless. But I want you to hear this on the front end. Even when that happens, even when that happens, even if leadership, or even if you as brothers and sisters in Christ, in our correcting, in our guiding, in our shepherding, in our leading, do it in a scriptural way and do it in love, there will always be some who will react negatively and will leave. So we've got to keep that in mind. Even applying biblical principles, there will always be those who leave. So, but we also need to know this, that no matter what the cause of our disunity, we should always work towards resolving our conflicts in the church in our marriages, in our relationships, in a biblical kind of way. That is, that, that is the calling of, the, of our church. Paul exhorts us to be diligent in maintaining the unity of the Spirit in a bond of grace. He also, in Romans it says that we must pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. If we want God's, God's blessing, Peter says that we must uh, let him seek peace and pursue it. Passivity is not, an, uh, is not an option. We cannot be passive. There is too much at stake for us to be passive when there is serious biblical error within the body. Or if there is immorality within the body. If there is division within the body. Passivity will never do. We must be active and loving in our pursuit of building up the body and pursuing peace. This week, we see that something was going on internally. People came to Nehemiah and shared a story. And the problem centered on the, the complaints of the poorer Jews against the more wealthy Jews who were either ignoring the mosaic, pro, mosaic rules that were given out, that you cannot extract any kind of interest, that you cannot bring your people into slavery for, in unjust kind of ways, that you cannot do, act this way as the people of God. And things were made worse that there was a famine that was going on in the land. So one thing upon another thing, another layer, and on top of that, there were taxes. Anything, anybody here know anything about taxes in the Lincoln Way area? Ridiculous, right? 
So there were taxes. So what did they have to do? They had to sell land. They had to mortgage this. They had to take out this. They had, and there's layer upon. So there was injustice. There was famine. There were taxes. All kinds of things. And there was even got to the point that some had to even sell their children. An unthinkable thing. Sell their children. There's some days where you go, man, I could just give them away. I don't need to sell them. But at your heart of heart, you go, I love these kids. And can you imagine the heartache that a parent would have to go through to say, we cannot even eat. We cannot even have a place to live. And my children are famished. They cannot even survive. There's not food in our house. Our only option is to enslave them. So there is obvious disregard to the Mosaic law. There's obvious, there was not love that was taking place in that community. And Nehemiah saw these problems as serious enough to stop the work on the wall long enough to get the problem resolved internally. We've got to take care of this. Stop, blow the horn, the whistle, we're stopping it all, and we're going to resolve this problem today. And for us this morning, we have got to look at what are the principles, what are the the pieces that we have got to do as a church to understanding how do we resolve conflict in a biblical, God-honoring way. And so this morning, our theme is this, if it works for me, and maybe Donna, can you hit the theme one? Here's the theme. Something's wrong up there. The theme is, in order to do the Lord's work, in order to do the Lord's work, we must resolve conflicts in the church in a biblical manner. That's what we must do, in a biblical manner. And there's three principles that I I want you to, to hear and to see. And the first principle is to resolve conflicts biblically. People must air their complaints to the proper authorities. The first thing is for the people. And we can see this, what what happened here. The people who are being oppressed, who are in a tremendous amount of pain, and ah, life is just upside down, not like we thought it would ever be. What do we do here? How did they air their, their, their conflict, their pain? They did it in a way by going to the proper places. They went to the proper authorities. Here is a basic yet an often overlooked principle. A leader cannot deal with problems that he or she is not aware of. But I'll even tell you, in in the body of Christ and Missio Dei Church, how many times I have heard of problems that are going on in the midst, conflicts that are going on in the midst, issues, I don't like this, this isn't working, I don't like the city, well, I don't like the city, you know, little things are going on, and how do I hear about them? Second and third hand. Well, you know why so-and-so isn't doing this, you know why so-and-so isn't here. Oh, well, they didn't think that leadership would ever listen. Well, be more, I, I just figure I just... 
And so instead of coming to the leader, the people air their grievances and complaints where? To one another. Our biblical standard says, listen, if you have a problem, you grieve it to the appropriate place. It's impossible to deal with problems when you do not know about them. And when you find out a month or two later, sometimes even longer, that there has been a problem brewing, by that point there is such pain and bitterness. To root that out is nearly impossible. And people just disappear. For some reason it feels just easier to to circulate through the church and stir up dissension and disunity. We have it even within our own body recently, and I dare say this, around the issue of biblical manhood and womanhood. Instead of coming to the appropriate place, people do what? We have had in our body, and maybe even still sitting here today, folks who choose, instead of addressing it with the elders, those who have been ordained to lead the church, choose to talk and to gripe and stir up dissension. Unacceptable. If we're covenant members, we have even in our our covenant said this, I covenant to practice the humility and sacrificial attitude of Christ by considering the needs of others, by seeking spiritual friendships, and by not gossiping. And to that, we as elders need to hold the body accountable. If there is a problem, the first place, the first place is to go directly to the leader. And I'm going to encourage us, as a family, because we're going to see the blessings that Nehemiah reaped from this, for handling it in a proper way. As a body, if somebody comes to you and starts complaining and griping and mumbling, murmuring, whatever we want to call it, sharing a prayer concern, well, this is weighty for me. You've heard all the terminology. The first thing that we need to do is say, hold on a second. Have you talked to the appropriate parties? Or are you gossiping? Are you being divisive right now? Why why are you telling me this information? Do I need to know this? And direct them. Have you talked to the elders? Have you talked to that ministry leader? Have you talked to the person that you should be talking to? So that's the first thing. The second thing, the second principle to resolve conflicts biblically, leaders, this is where I'm starting to talk to me and other ministry leaders, leaders must deal with complaints in a biblical manner. Nehemiah was the example of of godly leadership right here. He could have told these people that came to him and said, listen, I'm really busy with this wall. Can you come back in six months when, when things are a lot easier? You know, in fact, it's only going to take us 52 days to knock this baby out. 
Could you come back? It's not even a couple months. Could you come back a little bit later and we could, we could work through your problems? But Nehemiah realized that the problems were significant and that the people were upset. And so he interrupted his attention on the wall to listen and to help resolve the matter. And he did five things that a leader, and this can apply to your, your business world, your work world, wherever that you live. It doesn't have to be a church, church leader, a pastor, an elder, a deacon. It is wherever you are. These are five things that he did that a leader should be doing. And the first thing is that if you look in verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 5, you can see the first thing. He got righteously angry. Righteously angry, not just angry. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. He wasn't angry at the people, these poor saps that were coming to him. He was angry at the injustice that was taking place. And there seems to be two extremes in our Christian circles today. Some that thinks that anger is altogether just absolutely wrong. You should never be angry. You should never be that, That's just not an emotion that any of us should ever have. And some Christians who think this deny their own anger. And they just repress that anger. But others buy into a modern psychology that says that anger isn't either right or wrong. It, it just is. It, it is what it is. But we can see that Jesus, he himself experienced a just, righteous kind of anger. When there was something that was impeding the worship of the God Almighty, when he walked into the temple courts and saw that there was all kinds of selling and vending and things that were getting in the way of worshiping God, what did he do? He didn't just say, hey, you guys, can you kind of make a path right here? There was an anger that went deep, a righteous anger, because there was something that was impeding worship and impeding God's mission of being deeply satisfied in God and glorifying Him. And Jesus cleared the temple courts. Righteous anger is healthy. And for the people of God whose hearts have been, have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts have been changed, there should be something in us that when we see injustice in our day and age, when we see things are not right in our, in our church family, in our marriages, in our lives, in our workplaces, there should be a sense of anger that things are not right. And we should feel this deeply. It's right to get to get angry about sinful practices such as child abuse, about pornography, about abortion, about racism, about the mistreatment of women. These are all good things to be angry about. When these things are not being done right and God-honoring, we need to experience anger. That's what Nehemiah did. But he also, if you read on in verse 7, he also exercised, and we need to exercise, self-control. Look at what he did. It says here, I took counsel with myself. A lot of time when I am angry, what do I do? What do you, what do, you do? Some of you just kind of go into your passive-aggressive mode and just say, well, whatever. Some of us lash out. I am going to fix this, and all your motives are upside down and wrong and turned inside out. 
This is not going to happen again. I've seen this in parenting, disciplining children. I myself have experienced that. When my children step out of bounds and they do not listen and obey, that's one of the words we talk about, right? Yeah, we talk about listening and obeying. And when they don't listen and obey, there's a part of me that gets righteously angry, and I'm going to exact some kind of punishment. But what did he do? He, he, I took counsel of myself. He, he stepped back. It, scripture doesn't say what he did when he took counsel with himself. But I'm assuming, knowing, reading through Nehemiah, that he was a man of prayer where he prayed and he sought God's, God's wisdom. He exercised control. Proverbs 16.32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The man or woman who exercises control and restraint is better than a mighty person or one who is able to control a whole city. Then he followed, principle number three, he followed the principles of biblical confrontation. It's easy to get angry and to cool off and just say, oh, well, it's too late, it's out of my hands, too big of a problem. But what did he do? According to Scripture, I brought the charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them. He went directly to those who were Stepping out of bounds. He spoke to them directly. And I'm going to tell you, this is the scary thing for a leader. The scary thing for me, that if, if, I, if I hear, I see in the lives of, of one of you that you are stepping outside, you're, you're in, you are in sin, maybe there's um, immorality, maybe there's misuse of money, you're gossiping. And for me to come up and say, Matt Anderson, I am deeply, as a brother in Christ... Uh, here are the charges that I've laid before you. There's great fear because Matt Anderson can choose. Any of you can choose how you are going to react. We all squeeze. When we're squeezed, internally, stuff comes out. And especially the wealthy. These were wealthy people. And as a church leader, it's hard to confront somebody who is quite wealthy because inside of you as a leader, you go, man, if I confront you and you're a wealthy person, what's going to happen? They're going to go find another church to support. They're going to take their money and they're going to vote with their cash. But what is the call of a leader? Is the call of a leader to just kind of gloss over, ice over things and just make everything sweet? And just say, ah, they'll get better. This will get fixed. Give it time. Or is it biblical confrontation? and discipleship, and discipline. First thing that he did is he confronted privately those who were mistreating the poor. He laid it out. He talked to them directly. He laid out the charges. He talked to his brothers and said, you are mistreating. And this must stop. Did he succeed in private? I'm going to assume no. Because the next thing that he did 
was he moved to public confrontation. He called a great assembly and spelled out the problem. He rebuked the leaders publicly. <laughs> I pray that, Monsieur Day, that we never get to this point. And I, I hope you pray for that too. But he, he rebu rebuked them and said, listen, you, we've redeemed these people from the nations. We have, we have bought them back. And what are you doing? You're sell, allowing them to sell themselves back into slavery. That is working backwards. And when it was laid out and it was a public rebuke, their response was they could not find a word to answer. He further said that their behavior was not good in that their enemies would mock the Jews for their mistreatment of their own people. See, Nehemiah was not just concerned that, hey, things aren't good here and these people are grumbling and griping, so I've got to take care of this problem. He had a bigger vision. Listen, we are the bride of Christ. We are a community of faith. We are God's people. And how we work together, how we live together, how we live life upon life upon life is critical to the mission of God. The whole world is watching us. That's why it's critical that we know how to confront and deal with our problems internally. That's why we don't, we don't want any gossip, why we don't want any division or disunity. Because it is a testimony about God's work in our lives to the world and to one another. It is critical. Another thing that he did was he set a personal example of, his, of godliness. He set a personal example. Nehemiah showed these leaders that leaders must be above reproach, proving to be examples to their own flock. And what did you see him do? He spent his own money to redeem fellow Jews. He loaned them money without interest. He led. He was above reproach. His practices give us several important principles for leaders. He set aside his own rights and did not take advantage of his own position of power. He set aside his own rights. He could have, as a governor, received all kinds of payment from the people to feed the 150 people that were at his table on a regular basis. But he laid aside his rights. Does that sound like somebody that you know? The one who Philippians 2 talks about how Christ has laid aside his rights for the sake of redeeming his people and restoring his people? Christ did this. Nehemiah was foreshadowing something far more powerful, far more beautiful that was to come. Practicing something that was instilled deeply in him. He also feared God and cared about hurting people. He feared God. And he was concerned about the service that was too heavy on the people. He feared God. Is there a healthy fear that we have of God? And is, do we even see internally that, man, the work is too heavy on that person or on these people? 
We must care about hurting people. But we must fear God first and foremost because these people are His. You're His people. These are your God's people. And how I handle you, I am going to have to give an account someday for how I nurture, discipline, guide, lead your people. I have to have a healthy fear of God. And He was also extremely generous and ready to give. He fed that whole crowd. A whole ox. Each day, an ox. Butchered a whole cow. Gave it up. Six sheep. A bunch of birds and a bunch of wine later on. In abundance, he said. He modeled out his own generosity. A leader must be an example of generosity. My life needs to be an open book. If you are a leader in a small group, or a leader in, in children's ministry, a leader in hospitality, a leader in your workplace, they need to be able to see that there is generosity. That if you are calling people to this, you yourself are doing it. He was also deeply committed to the work. He kept his focus on the wall and also knew to to do this, to accomplish this, I've got to deal with this. But he also reported that he applied himself or persevered to the work of the wall. He worked hard at it. And lastly, he worked for God's approval. Verse 19, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done. Remember, God, I am doing this ultimately for for you and your approval. I want to hear, God, at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. But the powerful thing here is how this all seems to end. Nehemiah also required accountability. Nehemiah knew that human nature is full of great intentions and we even make promises. We make promises in our marriage. We make promises at our workplace. We make promises to one another about our children and the covenant uh, sacrament of baptism. We make promises here, we make promises there, but we live, we are fully fallen people, broken. So what did he do? He brought these rich nobles and officials forward and made them take an oath before the people of God. And then in the tradition of the prophets, he took his cloak, shook it out, and gave them a visual as dust was flying from his cloak, as he's been working on the wall, he took the cloak and shook it out and said, after they made the promise, so may it be with you if you don't keep your word. He had them do what? Sign on the dotted line. 
You made a promise before God and His people. So may it be with you. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Those are big things. And what did the people say? You see how they responded? Amen! So shall it be. Accountability. Leaders need to hold people accountable to their promises before God and and others. If there has been marital unfaithfulness or financial misdeeds, the guilty party needs to reestablish trust. And the only way to do this is through very close accountability. Which requires intimate relationships and life on life. And finally, the final, final principle, even though there's been a gajillion this morning, to resolve conflicts biblically, people must be willing to submit to God, His Word, and to godly leaders. Sadly, when when leaders confront uh, people with wrongdoing, all too often, people either react with anger or defensiveness or they just move on and go to another church or they drop out of church altogether without properly dealing with sin. But thankfully, there are a few victories such as we see here. They were willing to face up to their own greed and pay back those who they have taken advantage of And they were not only willing to be accountable, they did it all with praise to God. For my few years of being a a pastor, I can say to see people respond in this kind of way is rare. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. deep maturity and love for the gospel. That they're willing to submit to correction. Correction in the home. Correction in the the family. The church family. But it shouldn't be a rare thing. Hebrews 3, 13, verse 17. Donna, if you could pull that up for me gives an an exhortation which sounds kind of odd and strange in our day. You can't get it? Okay. Here, I'll just read it. Or find it on your own. Hebrews 13, verse 17. It says this. And you tell me why this feels odd. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give in an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You hear what the author is saying? Obey your leaders. 
for they've been given oversight of the flock. God has placed them in a, and you, you affirmed their calling. Obey these leaders. Submit to them. Because someday they will have to give an account for this flock. And on top of this, do it in such a way that brings them joy. You see that? Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. I can just imagine Nehemiah at the end of this all and hearing the people worship and say amen, how his heart was filled with joy. There's restoration. Look at the people of God restored together, working as they are supposed to be, as his covenant people. There's nothing like when the people of God work together in unity. When they acknowledge sin, they they see sin. They're aware of, the, as C.S. Lewis says, they're aware of their own inner cesspool. Not only are they aware of their own inner cesspool, what do they do? They repent. Say, nah, that's not going to be me. And they turn back to God. I pray, I pray that we have the kind of church that knows, that we have the kind of people that know how to biblically confront one another. That we are, we are so marked with love for one another, with a love that doesn't come from our own self, our own culture. It's a different kind of love. It's a deep, rich, agape type of love that out of this love that God has given to me, through the cross of Jesus Christ, out of this love that's been poured out of me, there is this overflow that I, I just cannot help but love you. And when I, when I see you step out and break God's commandments, where, where I hear you gospel, where I hear you are being divisive, when I, hear, when I see you being lazy, when I see you not being generous with your time, your talents, your treasure, when I see, I know this breaks my heart, not just because it puts extra work on me, but it breaks my heart because there is a kingdom out there that needs to be expanded into, are you all right over here? What's going on? That there is a kingdom that needs to be expanded out into a dark and lonely and broken world. And we are to be the kingdom of light, salt and light in this world. And I need you. You need me. We need to work together as a body of Christ. And we are going to go out together. But I've got to be honest. You're broken. As I'm broken. And together... We're going to work towards restoring and being reconciled before God and to one another. For the sake of kingdom expansion. For the sake of God's, God's name and God's people not to be marred. But when they look at the church of Jesus Christ, they say, ah, those are blessed people. Those are generous people. Those are beautiful, kind, loving people. There's something strangely appealing about them. We will have conflict. Period. We will have conflict. 
question is as redeemed people, how do we respond? How do we respond? And as we come to the Lord's Supper, we are called to be a people who are examining ourselves, examining our our private lives and our need to be reconciled to God again. For some of us, it's in our marital lives. And maybe relationships are broken, strained, painful. And we need to be restored again through biblical confrontation out of love. Maybe it's internally here with one another. That before we come to the Lord's Supper where we recognize His body and His blood, the the work that He has done to create a new and redeemed and beautiful bride, maybe we need to have some deep and meaningful conversations with one another. And be honest. Not judgmental, honest. In love with one another. Maybe it's not here. Maybe the conversation is outside these doors. The conversations need to take place with those broken people or broken relationships. Maybe you are the one that broke a relationship that needs to be restored. Maybe it's time for you to confess. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, we keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Because that's where our hope is. That it was accomplished Paul was reminding the church in Corinth, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel by which you were saved, the gospel in which you are currently standing, and by which you are being saved. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the good news of Jesus Christ, that he will be the restoring work in our lives. And as your your pastor elder, you are in need of prayer this morning I am going to be in the back I don't want anybody just to come up and just say hey good sermon Paul appreciate it high five kind of thing appreciate it unnecessary if you are in need of prayer come with humility come bravely receive prayer if you need to you're uncomfortable praying with, with me as a, just as a man. We can get over that hopefully in time. But seek out a, maybe a godly woman, another godly person here to be praying with. And then come. For communion is for sinners who have been redeemed and are being redeemed.
on the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of blessing and he poured it out, saying, This is my blood in the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Those who are serving, please come forward.